I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. On this episode of The Blues Hustle, I talked to OG winemaker and proprietor of Smith Madrone Winery, Stuart Smith. One of the oldest wineries in Napa Valley Spring Mountain, Stuart and his brother Charles have been at the helm for over 50 years producing estate-grown wines. Stu and I chatted about his adventurous beginnings in Napa and how he's been able to maintain his vision and integrity over the years. While a lot of Napa tourism has evolved into a more shiny, hospitality-driven experience model over the years, Smith Madrone has really remained true to their values, choosing to put everything they can into producing beautiful wine. If you're looking for a real wine experience with real farmers, look no further. I really enjoyed talking to Stu, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. I was asked by a, a wine columnist about six years ago what my opinion was of all of these famous people getting into the wine business. And I said, it's God telling them they have too much money. Yes, I read that quote, and that's I wrote that down, and I actually was going to tell you that's probably one of my favorite <laughs> quotes I've heard recently. It's actually on my paper in front of me. The other one you say you talked about, um, talking about people like with too much money, and they're from other industries, and then they come into the wine business, and it's just like another widget for them. And that yes. that is so uh, that is so true, and I I struggle with that because I I do work for a very large. Uh, wine and spirits industry company. And there are some very big brands in there. And then there are also some smaller boutique things. Um, And my heart and passion is always going to be in, you know, the artisanal, the smaller, the boutique, the family, the story, the terroir. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's a, that's a line I ride, Stu. And uh, man, you've got some great sound bites. It's an issue. And 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 as as I like to say, Mr. and Mrs. Got Rocks, who sold their widget company in the Silicon Valley for a good bazillion <laughs> dollars, and they go, they look at one another, and they go, "Well, what do what are we going to do now? Now with all this money and we're being retired?" And and one says, "Oh, we love that. Oh, let's go to the Napa Valley. Oh, let's have a. Oh, that would be so neat." Mm-hmm. And what they don't understand is that it's a tough business. A little winery like Smith Madrone has to be basically a, a multinational-like Procter & Gamble because mm-hmm. we sell in 35 states. We sell in uh, a dozen countries. Our, our um, 105 square foot office uh, <laughs> has, has to be able to reach out and, and tell our story to the world. Um, 
and and get people in uh, Alberta, Canada. That's the only province that we can deal with up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, or the UK or Czechoslovakia or Japan. Uh, you know, to get our story out, to get people to, to buy the wine. Um, yeah, and I got to imagine that's a delicate balance too, right? Because you guys are pretty pretty relatively small production-wise. Um, and, it, you, you know, you got to kind of thread the needle where you want everyone to know about your wine, but you don't want to get beyond your capacity for demand because then what happens? Well, yeah, another way for and, and uh, of, of looking at it is that if you're looking at a, at a community that you live in, say, uh, well, uh, so- somewhere like St. Helena or even a, a, a bigger town like Napa, which is 70,000 people. If you have a business there, your sphere of influence from a radius point of view might be 10, 15 miles. In other words, if you're a, a restaurant, if you're a, um, a dry cleaning place, if you're a, a hardware store or a, a uh, or a lumber yard, you know, something of that nature, you, you know, you're not going to sell to people who are a hundred miles away from you, mm-hmm. le- let alone 2000 miles or 3000 or 20,000 miles. Uh, so it's, it's, a it's a very strange business. And, um, <laughs> it and is a strange the, business. Yeah. The Mr. And Mrs. Got Rocks people is that <laughs> they do sell widgets. That's what they sold. And what they, have to find out the hard way is that the wine business is basically about people. Mm-hmm. It's a people business. And if you 100%. don't like people, you shouldn't be in the business. Yeah, true. I wonder how you stay so grounded and, and how, you know, your family, obviously it's a family run business being in such a um, hot spot, right. For that is Napa Valley. Um, you know, everyone's, looks at Napa as kind of the the place of California, the heart of California winemaking, right? And and you have a really mix, like a big mix between people who are true farmers and then people like the Got Rocks people. <laughs> How do you and your family stay so grounded um, in your philosophies? Well, the philosophy is easy. I didn't know, I don't think I knew the word artisanal when I started this adventure. And nor did I ever think of myself as an artist, but but I think that in the wine business, um, that's where I ended up because I I came to the top of Spring Mountain because I wanted to make the very best wine humanly possible, and I felt then as I do today that there are two fundamentals about wine that are unalienable and unalterable. And that is that you can only make great wine from great grapes. You you cannot yet, technology hasn't achieved it, and hopefully not in my lifetime, take ordinary grapes and be able to make pretty damn good wine out of it. Mm -hmm. And so the next one, and if you accept the premise that only good grapes can make good wine or great grapes make great wine, um, the, the second one is that all things being equal, as Virgil said in 43 BC, he did a treatise on agriculture. And when it came to wine grapes, he uh, compared it to olives. And he said, you know, with olives, you just plant, plant the trees and 
after a number of years, you just harvest them. Mm-hmm. With wine grapes, you got to take care of them. You got to prune them. You've got to train them. Uh, then you have to harvest them. And, and he said, it's a lot of work. But the point I'm getting to is that he also is the one who said, um, Bacchus Amatkolis, which is Bacchus loves the hills. Mm-hmm. So they recognized uh, all those, you know, a couple thousand years ago, that the best grapes came from the mountains. Mm-hmm. And so it was that that drove me to, to finding the mountains. And, and it was that. And, and, it, and when I was a boy growing up, we had this concept of disposable merchandise. You, you, you didn't take it and get it repaired. You, you used it when it broke, you threw it out, you got a new one. And, and I found that pretty hideous and wasteful. And, and when I went off to college, I realized that I was fond of wine. Not that I don't like beer. I do. I just like wine a whole lot better. And, and so I met a lot of friends uh, and made a lot of friends uh, at Berkeley in the 60s and would come up to the Napa Valley. And, and I grew up in Southern California, Santa Monica. I didn't want to go back there. Mm-hmm. And so I took a class at UC Davis as a senior. Um, I was what was called an intercampus exchange student. I took the class, loved it, and said, what the hell? Um, I'm going to try to get into the graduate program there and see if I can't somehow get into the wine industry. And, and that's, that's how it got me to that point. And I remember thinking, now that I want to do this, how do I do it? And the idea that, you know, one alternative was to go to back to Southern California and try to make a fortune like Mr. <laughs> and Mrs. Got Rocks and buy my way in. And I thought, no, that's, that's pretty, that, no, nah, I don't want to do that. And Joe, Joe Heights was a, uh, a, a, a person that I looked at and I thought, okay, this is, this is, this sounds like a good way to do it, which is to come up through the educational system mm-hmm. and to use your education in an industry which is pretty strongly, agri- you know, very, very fundamentally agricultural. And, um, and I believe then, I, I happened to you know, grow up in California in what I would call the golden age of education uh, for California. And, um, and that's, that's how I got to where I, you know, launched myself. And then um, I was able to put together a, a partnership uh, because I was 22 when I started this and I had no money. Um, and so that's, that's how I got into the wine business. When you started, you were so young. Did you have a vision for what the winery would be, you know, 50 years down the road? And how is that, how is that different from where it is now? Or is it the same? Did you always have it visioned this way? Well, first of all, I was scared out of my wits doing this. Because uh, I, 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 I didn't have any mentors. I didn't have, I mean, I did a little work in the valley in the vineyards during the summers. And one of the people I worked with was Andre Chelichep, and I got to know him pretty well. And Bob Steinhauer uh, uh, became a, a, a lifelong friend. But most people, when they get in the wine business, they work for a winery. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't have that option. Uh, I, or I chose not to take that option. And so everything I did, I had to research and analyze and use the skills that both Berkeley and, and UC Davis gave me. 
to, mm-hmm. to, to move forward. And so um, I knew that I wanted to be more like a um, European chateau style winery mm-hmm. where we didn't necessarily buy grapes, uh, that, that we were trying to be um, small and just make uh, wine from the grapes that we grew mm-hmm. and how we grew them and all of all of that that goes with it. Um, and I remember uh, a couple of years into it, uh, we did buy some grapes. And my brother and I were talking about this, and and he joined me a couple of years into it. And um, and and we realized that w- w- if we buy grapes, why are we on the top of a mountain? uh you know why are we at 1900 feet and 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 doing all this you know really hard work of clearing the forest and planting the vineyards and and um doing all of that when if we're going to buy grapes let's move down onto the valley floor let's move down onto highway 29 uh, get all the tourists Mm -hmm. that we can and then the issue is who do we model ourselves after right and and you lose that because if you're if you're going to make a, a real business out of this, you're only limited by your own imagination and your ability to hire good people. Mm-hmm. And and um, and if you do that, then you grow, and then mm-hmm. you keep growing. And so, is Chapelet your model, um, or is Robert Mondavi your model, or is um, Gallo your model? Mm. Uh, and so where do you, where do you go on that? And so we realized that we kind of lost our direction a little bit, which I think in retrospect was a really good thing Sure, because it reaffirmed what it is that we wanted to do and how we wanted to do it and why we were there. Mm -hmm. And I like to say, if money was the motivating factor for us, uh, and when I used to teach, uh, over at Santa Rosa junior college, viticulture and oenology. I used to say to the, to the to the class, and I taught there for ten years or so. Um, if you want to, if you want to make money in this world, buy a couple of McDonald's franchises, because in a couple of years you'll be able to retire to the Bahamas, and your your McDonald's franchises will just keep keep paying you. Mm-hmm. And and in the wine business, in ten years, the winery says, "Feed me, feed me, feed me." Um, so it's it's a and, and my undergraduate degree at Berkeley was in economics. And, and people, oh, you must know a lot about business. I don't know squat about business. Um, that, that doesn't teach me anything about business. I was a macroeconomist. But what it taught me was the wine industry is an extraordinarily stupid industry because you tie up so much capital uh, to do something. You're fundamentally a farmer. And, and, and you know, back to Mr. and Mrs. Scott Rocks, they have no idea that at the heart of the entire wine industry is, is being a dirt farmer. You've got to mm-hmm. grow something. And all of the, the um, uh, uncertainties of farmers is at the very base of what you're trying to do. So we're in a drought now. Scares the hell out of me. We're, we're in wild, wildfire season. I won't go anywhere during the wildfire season when it's at its worst. Sure. I, I simply won't travel anymore. My son Sam and I uh, were able to get to the, the vineyard and the winery at the beginning of the glass fire. And because of that, we lost nothing. Three of my neighbors lost their wineries. Other wineries on Spring Mountain vanished too. 
anyway, it's it's a labor of love. If you don't like what you're doing, um, you shouldn't you shouldn't be doing it. Well, it's refreshing to hear that perspective. Um, you know, I think a lot gets lost in the wine business. Um, I often, you know, on the sales side of things, wherever everyone complicates everything and uh, it's 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 always nice to go back and, and talk to people that actually have a um, you know a mindset for you know everything we do uh, whether it's successful or not is dependent on uh, things outside of our control sometimes and hard work and it's terrifying but it can be rewarding and there's some really incredible people in the wine business that have just taught me. You know, if you're not going to do it 110%, there's no point in doing it in life in general and anything. And I think that's incredible. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I had some questions about Spring Mountain. Um, why do you think, and I mean, maybe you don't think this, but I, my, my maybe my perspective is is different, but like, there's some incredible, and, and your wines are beautiful, by the way. Thank you so much, um, uh, Julie sent me. Um, I'm obsessed with the Riesling, that 2017 Riesling. is so beautiful. Um, it's everything uh, stylistically in a Riesling that I want and look for and drink, and it's perfect. And it was beautiful. So thank you for sending those wines. Um, I wonder why Spring Mountain doesn't get as much recognition just historically in the trade and the press and, and everything. Um, is it, do you think it's because the consumer mentality 
um, like higher alcohol, like bigger, like fruitier type wines are like, you know, more in fashion. And that's what the critics are scoring because, you know, for me, I love European wines and I love wines that have character and aren't are really well balanced and they don't have to have a ton of alcohol to do that. Um, what what are your thoughts on why Spring Mountain doesn't get as much love recognition? Um, I think it's because we're the worker bees. Um, we're uh, almost all the wineries on on the mountain are family wineries, mm-hmm. and and we do we do the work um, both in the vineyards and in the wineries, and we don't have a lot of time. Uh, to go out and kind of sell the sizzle, if you would. <laughs> it's a very provocative question, by the way. And and let me just say it from our point of view. And and I don't think we're that different from other people. We may be a little bit this way, but we're more of a Europeanist winery. Mm-hmm. Um, we we think six seven thousand years of of growing grapes and making wine in in Europe is a pretty impressive number and um and they've honed in on on how you define quality which for me i'll just kind of summarize and that is that uh you know i think of wine is the first obligation is to give pleasure but but then um then there's balance and complexity and elegance and restraint and finesse uh and and when i was at uc davis uh i i got into I was pretty much a pest uh, with my <laughs> professors because I was always uh, g- going at them and saying, why do you say this? You know, and what about doing it this way? And one of the things that Dr. Amron especially would get on us would say, well, how do you define elegance? How do you si- design, uh, uh, define finesse or all of these other very nebulous words? And, and I would say, well, it's like art. It's when you see it, you know it. <laughs> and and while maybe the word finesse all by itself, or it, the the complexity or restraint, uh, well, restraint's a really bad word uh, from the you know the two thousands. Um, and I think back to your question uh, is directly a response to it. We think restraint is a good thing. Just because you can do something doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Now. The, the two most powerful magazines in the world, Wine World, um, uh, basically it was is go big or go home. And that's not the kind of wines that we were looking for. Uh, mm-hmm. they, they, they may taste well. Those wines taste well. But after the second taste, you get bored with them because you hone in on simplicity of the prune or raisin flavor which can be very seductive in the get-go, mm-hmm. but really doesn't go well in the long run. And I remember uh, in the uh, late 70s when Chardonnay were these big, fat, round, juicy, low-acid monsters. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody, when, when there was a dinner party or, or what have you, and, and everybody would taste those wines first. And at the end of the night, you would see which wines were consumed. And it generally wasn't those wines, but, but they're wines that are made for the tasting, for the taste panel, for the taste mm-hmm. reviewer, not for the person 
who reaches out for a bottle of wine and says, this is what I want to drink tonight. And so back to your issue with Spring Mountain, it's a really complicated issue, but, but at Smith Madrone, our issue is complexity, elegance, restraint, layering, um, balance. And I then think of, of um, uh, you know, the French use it as, call it terroir. In the new world, a lot of us call it a sense of place. Mm-hmm. I think of it as an ephemeral sense of art. That what should define Smith Madrone is a uniqueness that we we present from the site of the property, the exposure. Um, those of us, you know, those of you know, the, we we personally as the grape growers and we personally as the winemakers go into all of that, and and we should make a Chardonnay maybe similar, but it should be discernible from our neighbors of Keenan or Schwager or Pride. Um, and that's that sense of uniqueness. And I think that's really important. And I think it then flows in further into the concept that that's why we vintage date, is to celebrate the diversity of the vintages and, and, and uh, uh, skew the concept of pounding the square peg through the round hole. Now, that's great if you're if you're making Sutter Home White Zinfandel, God love them, okay? They're some of my best friends in the Valley. They're in a different part of the industry and, and their consumer wants something exactly what they had the last time, but that's not our part of the industry. Now, they're way more financially successful than we are. Um, uh, and, and we have you know just two, two, two different views of it. But the other one on Spring Mountain is that I think we're, we're all, we're, we're, we're hard workers. Um, working on the mountain is, is hard. Uh, it takes a lot of time, takes a lot of effort. Um, and I think at the end of the day, we kind of run out of the uh, publicity uh, side of things. And I don't think any of us have the flair that seems to be going on now in the valley. There's a series of articles uh, with Jess Lander and, and Esther Mobley on the changing wine industry of Napa Valley. And it's all about the huge amount of money coming in to the valley. The fancy tasting rooms, uh, mm-hmm. they're practically restaurants now. Um, and I have a bit of a problem with the restaurant issue. Uh, we changed the rules some years ago to allow food service, but, but it was never intended to turn wineries in, into restaurants. And, and, and now we have, um, we have people that are spending a million dollars for a, a, a tasting experience, which is inside a glass cage, inside a, 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 uh, winery where you do a biometric hand scan to be led into this warmed area so that women that are half-dressed uh, uh, won't get cold while they'll taste the wine inside a wine cellar, <laughs> a wine cave. And, and, and in some ways, um, I, I rile against this. And, and I think sometimes that Napa Valley is becoming a little bit like uh, the Italian Renaissance era, which is my Duomo is more is bigger than your Duomo. My church painter is more famous than your church painter. And people have forgotten that wineries 
you bring grapes in one side of the winery and it goes through the winemaking process and agent and out comes bottles of wine on the other end. Hmm. It 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 doesn't need to be Disney a, World. <laughs> uh, it doesn't need to be a a a dedicated building to the owner's ego of how right. much money they made in some other industry. Yeah. And and yet that seems to be drawing the, the visitor to the Napa Valley. And Spring Mountain just hasn't, you know, we 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 haven't had those kind of buildings. I did want to ask about the family dynamic. So I come from a how do I say this politely? I guess bombastic Italian family. Uh, we butt heads about pretty much everything. Um, how, how is working with your brother all of these years? Have you guys always gotten along? Has there been times where you don't see eye to eye on things? How, how does that work? <laughs> it's a little bit like a marriage. Mm-hmm. Uh, mostly it's good. There are occasions where it gets a little feisty. Uh, but, but, and I didn't realize this at the time, but some 10 or 12 years after my brother, Charlie, uh, joined me, I realized that there was a family history of this. My father worked with his brother, uh, for a very long period of time. Hmm. And so we didn't think much of it because there was a, there was a history of it. Um, the good thing about it is that you, we trust one another in a way that we we might not trust anybody else. Um, if we're gone or whatever, I, I know that he's going to take care of whatever issues show up and and uh, vice versa. Hmm. Um, but we we occasionally uh, butt heads on things, but you know it 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 goes away just like any other kind of uh, <laughs> minor dispute in a marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it works out. We do all the tastings together, all the the blends, and we keep doing the blends until we all agree on what we're doing. And <laughs> and um, and we have the same similar we have similar views about wine. He's more of a red fruit guy. I'm more of a black fruit guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know, I, I know what he likes. He knows what I like. And and um, and 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 in that same air, you know, vein. Uh, I like to say that, um, I don't take credit and I don't take, you know, it's like, like my kids, I don't take credit and I don't take blame. Same thing with vintages, you know, the wine quality. Um, you know, we both look at the vintages as this is what mother nature gave us. Mm-hmm. And it's our job as the grower and the, well, especially the winemaker is to, is to get the wine, um, that mother nature or the grapes that Mother Nature gave us, and 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 get what's there into the glass of the wine. Um, and so, from that point of view, we're very compatible. That's great. And and you got your your whole family there, um, right? Is it your your nephew, or is it your son that's a winemaker? Or is it his son that's a winemaker? Uh, it was my my son that was there. He's he's off doing his own thing called Curly St. James. So he's trying to make his label go. So oh, cool. Um, and so he's he's out doing that thing. Um, and uh, and and I and I wish him all this success. But if he wants to come back, that would be wonderful. <laughs> Just pull it's like you want him to succeed, but you're also kind of like, but come work for us. Yeah. What is um? What so? What's the legacy for the winery? Where where do you see? You know, 
bigger picture in, you know, history, when we look back at this period of, of your life in winemaking, what's the legacy of Smith Madrone? Well, um, I'm not sure I've ever, uh, well, I, I'd like to say that, that I think one of the legacies of Smith Madrone might be that we help pioneer um, high elevation hillside grape growing and winemaking. I've personally been very involved in the land use politics of Napa County, mm-hmm. and I would like to probably be remembered for that activism because I have pretty much been a leading vocal force for the rights of agriculture and farming in the mountains. Hmm. And, uh, and, and that's pretty important to me. I also am pushing back on a, a part of the community. Let's, let's go back just a little bit. When I came to the Valley, I kind of thought of the valley as a three-legged stool that allowed Napa Valley to, to really do well. And that is that we had uh, UC Davis and Fresno State creating a bunch of young winemakers and grape growers um, to, to go into the industry and, and give us education and technology. And we had a board of supervisors that was pretty, pretty supportive. Uh, could have been a little better, but could have been a lot worse at the time. And then probably the, the, the most pivotal one was that we had a community that was welcoming to the, to the development of the wine industry. And if you, if you, if you go back 50, you know, if you, if you look at the 50 years that's changed, what, what's changed? Well, we now have both UC Davis, we have Fresno State, we have Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, um, we have Washington State University and Geneva um, that are that are educating young grape growers and winemakers, and we have um, uh, Sonoma State University over uh, just south of Santa Rosa, who's doing a wine marketing program, and they're doing a good job with that. So we're we're providing educated people to come into the industry and and help it flourish. The Board of Supervisors no longer has our back, and we can't trust them to support us. And we have an extraordinarily vocal group of people in the Valley who are opposing us at every, everything we do. Hmm. So it, it challenges my being in that, what's the future of the Valley? Um, for people of modest means, of ordinary people, um, there are a lot of graybeards like me in the Valley who started wineries um, 30, 40, some of us 50 years ago. And, uh, they're, they're making it extremely difficult for us to, to, to flourish. And then we have, uh, the sale of winery of after winery, after winery to extraordinarily wealthy, um, entities. Mm-hmm. And that's putting another, uh, uh, roadblock for us. And then the regulations that, that are being thrown at uh, just California businesses in general, and specifically what Napa County is, is throwing at us, is making it even more difficult. Mm-hmm. So um, a friend of mine, a wine writer, asked me a couple months ago, why are you so optimistic about you know, the future of the Napa Valley wine industry? And I said, Tom, who says I'm optimistic? <laughs> oh. 
um, you know, we'll survive by hook or by crook or something, but I'm not sure what the future will look like for Napa Valley in 20, 30 years from now. Sure. Uh, it's, we're seeing the change right in front of our eyes. Stony Hill, who is our neighbor downslope and to the east of us, and, and, and was the quintessential small winery that sold directly con- to the consumers um, you know, and started in the, in the early 50s, uh, sold about four or five years ago, and, and then immediately resold. And uh, it sold to uh, Longmeadow Ranch, and then it, it sold again to the Lawrence Estate. Um, so there's a, there's a change afoot in the valley, and it's mm-hmm. happening right in front of us. And sometimes I know where the valley is going, and sometimes they don't. And, and one of those I don't times is now. And, mm-hmm. and I don't know where it's going. And I worry about a lot of the wineries that are like ours, that are scattered throughout the hills, that are the ones that, that people came to the Napa Valley to see originally. Mm-hmm. And which gave us the starts, um, and uh, and so uh, if you look at a legacy question, I guess I'm working my way around back to it. <laughs> I, I'd say the fact that we we were uh, helping to pioneer a grape growing in the mountains, and 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 growing and 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 creating a dedicated an absolute dedication toward wine quality. Yeah. And if anyone can plant their flag for Napa Valley history in its purest form, I think it would be you guys. I would like to think that. Yes. And thank you for saying that. Um, I, I do think there are others like us, but, but there's getting to be fewer and fewer of us. Well, Stu, you're awesome. I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to talk with me on my, my podcast. Um, I, I love, I I loved reading all of your, um, very colorful, uh, interviews and quotes along the way. Uh, I think you've got a really great, uh, sense of humor and way of looking at our business and is sometimes very, you know, where is it going to go kind of way, really like existential, (laughs) like bigger picture changes. And, um, you know, I I think you're fantastic. And I hope that you guys will have me uh, come visit the winery next time I'm in Napa. Absolutely. I'd love to. Yes, yes. And and thank you so much for being a guest. You're you're welcome. And it's fun talking with you. And uh, thanks for the good questions, too. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.